About three weeks ago or so, I was down in London, spending a few days down there. One day I was standing on Westminster Bridge, about a week before the terrorist outrage. The place was heaving with tourists, couples, individuals, groups from all over the world. You could hear many different languages being spoken. Most of them seemed to be taking photographs. A lot of them were taking selfies of themselves against Big Ben. Snapshots, or very probably these days, video clips on their smartphones. And in our reading this morning that Judy's just read to us, Luke gives us four, as it were, video clips, four shots separated of what was going on as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And you can see them really defined in the words that Judy was reading. First of all, we have the opening verse, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And then the next one comes at verse 37. When they came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives. And then the next one comes at verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And then finally, verse 48. Then he entered, 45, then he entered the temple and saw what was going on there. Four scenes, four video clips. And so we'll look at these four scenes that Luke has given us this morning. First of all, there's the donkey. There's no doubt that Jesus is in control of events all the way through. And this entry to Jerusalem is going to be a challenge. A challenge to whom? Not to the Roman authorities. And Jesus, it seems, wants this to be very clearly understood. Jesus is not challenging the civic authority of the time. If he were claiming earthly power, he wouldn't have chosen the donkey, he'd have chosen a horse. Uh, those of you who've been to Bannockburn, think of the tremendous statue of Robert Bruce on his horse, mounted and armed, high up on a pedestal. It's impressive. It's a claim to kingly power. That's what happens when a warrior gets on a horse. But Jesus chooses to fulfill an old prophecy made several hundred years earlier. In the, and we can read it in the book of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. A man riding on a donkey always looks faintly ridiculous. His legs hang down on the, each side of the little body of the donkey, almost touching the ground, so that his head is only a little bit above the head of those who are around him. 
Jesus is clearly no threat to the civil authorities, to the religious authorities. And as we read through the story of the coming week, we will see this. Pilate and Herod clearly see that Jesus is no threat to them at all. That part of Jesus' message clearly gets through. And then our next picture. Let's have a little map to show what's going on. The Mount of Olives. Now some of this is a little hard to see in the print, but you see roughly the path marked in red that Jesus and his disciples take as they come into Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives is a hill, a low hill compared to the uh, mountains round about, a low hill to the east of Jerusalem. And as you come up the Mount of Olives on the far side, you can't see the city. And then as you come over the top and there's a gentle incline coming down, you will see the city laid out before you. And there's a place, in fact, uh, near St. Andrews where you can get exactly the same effect. If you imagine yourself out by Cairns Mill Caravan site and you walk towards St. Andrews from there, there's a short, very gentle slope going uphill for a little while. And then you come to the top of this little slope and on your right-hand side there's a hideous cell phone mast in a field. And the road then starts curving down to the right and you see the whole of St. Andrews laid out before you. And you can see the old town on its escarpment and the new grey 19th century buildings uh, to the left of the Westport and the 1930s council housing buildings coming down towards you and then all the new building that has gone up since the 1960s around to the west and the southwest and some of it over to the east as well. You can see the whole city laid out. And so we can imagine Jesus coming over the incline and seeing this slope before him. And the disciples begin cheering and rejoicing and they spread their coats in the road. Come along, come along. There we go. And they are shouting and singing and rejoicing. And the words they are singing are the words of the great festival psalm, Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a great psalm which was sung generally at the famous central festivals of the faith of the land of Israel. A festival psalm of celebration. And why are they singing? Luke tells us they are singing because of all the miracles they have seen. And John's Gospel mentions one, perhaps the most important one, the raising of Lazarus, which John places just before these events of coming into Jerusalem. How many put their faith in Jesus at that time? And they tell the story to others. And so it's not just the 12 disciples plus a few hangers-on who are with Jesus. It's quite a crowd, and they draw attention to what is happening, who was coming on, and who was coming into Jerusalem. And of course, there are pilgrims there who haven't got the foggiest idea of what's going on. And they ask, who's king? Who is this king? Who is this man? And they say, this is Jesus, the teacher from Nazareth. Have you not heard? 
some of the Pharisees who are there are getting decidedly nervous. Teacher, stop them, they said. And Jesus made the comment that Andrew Haviland has already been talking to us about. If they were to stop, the very stones would cry out. This king is not one who is going to seek to snatch power from the Romans, but he is king of all creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. And even the stones, if they had voices, would stay the same. Something momentous is happening on this morning. And then they come over the brow of the hill of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sees the city of Jerusalem spread out before him. And he stops. And he weeps. Only Luke records this. The other accounts don't mention this. Why does he weep? He sees Jerusalem. Zion, the city of David, the temple resplendent in cream and gold. It's been building for many years, still not finished yet. It won't be finished for another 30 years or so. And Jesus sees what will happen to it. And the city, wrecked, destroyed, torn apart, systematically demolished. Why? Because, Jesus says, you didn't have the eyes to see. Peace is hidden from your eyes. You did not recognize God's coming to you. You see, this wasn't a first time that a city was going, uh, that a disaster was going to strike the city of Jerusalem. It had happened before, some 600 years earlier. The, the city of Jerusalem and the temple had been systematically destroyed by the Babylonians. Why? Because the nation was given over to idolatry, worship of foreign gods, worship of the Baals, raising up pillars to the goddess Ashtoreth. And Jesus sees that something of this sort, not quite the same, is going to happen again. And so, at this point, I wanted a picture of Jesus entering Jerusalem. What sort of picture would I choose? You go onto Google Images and you find almost literally hundreds of pictures offered to you. Many of them show Jesus interacting with the crowd. He's talking to the children. It's all great fun together. Hallelujah. Or he's, he's uh, acknowledging the people who are cheering all around him. I mean, it's rather like a presidential election campaign. Was it like that? This is a man who's just been weeping over a city and in his mind's eye, he knows what's going to happen. It's going to be torn apart. And so the picture I chose was this one. He comes in. He's preoccupied, withdrawn. As we sang in our hymn, Ride On, Ride On in Majesty, the greatest test, the greatest challenge, the greatest ordeal lies before him. 
and so this is the picture I chose. He looks rather detached. I rather fancy that he was. But why does Jesus foresee that a disaster similar to 600 years earlier is going to fall upon this city? We get a clue in the fourth picture. He enters the temple and he finds that the outermost court, the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles who wanted to worship the God of the Jews could come and do so safely, has been turned into a marketplace. Matthew's Gospel tells us what's going on there. There is money being exchanged at extortionate exchange rates. There are doves being sold for sacrifice, those people who want to offer a simple sacrifice. We remember that when Jesus was a baby and Mary and Joseph brought him when he was just eight days old to the temple in order to make the sacrifice, they were a poor family. They could afford just two doves. And so that's what they brought in the little basket for an offering. And there are other stalls too. In fact, the whole place has been turned into a common market. And Jesus drives them out with a great hullabaloo. My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. In other words, the Gentiles too can come to this area and pray to the Lord God, the Lord God of creation but you have made it a den of robbers. And Luke goes on to tell us in the chapters that we are not going to be looking at this morning, but he tells us that Jesus continues in the temple day after day for a few days in the same vein, provocative teaching that shows up the religious hierarchy as materialistic and self-serving. And Luke gives several examples in the next two chapters. Here is one. Beware the teachers of the law, says Jesus. They love to walk around in flowing robes and to be treated with humble respect wherever they go. But you know what? Did you know this? They, they swindle vulnerable old women out of their life savings. There's a den of robbers at the very heart of the temple as well as the marketplace in the outermost court. The whole religious hierarchy has been secularized. They're concerned only with their status, their power, which, with Rome's permission, is really quite considerable. And it's adhering to this that Jesus says will bring the ultimate disaster that fell upon them about 40 years later in the year AD 70. John's Gospel gives us some of the backstory to this. Once again, it's tied in with the raising of Lazarus, which had happened just recently. It raised a tremendous response. First of all, it was this great powerful miracle. Here was a man who had been in the tomb four days, and Jesus raises him. And this happened not very far from Jerusalem. It wasn't like the story of miracles up around Lake Galilee and news didn't travel very far and everybody said, well, these are just stories. This had happened on the doorstep of a great number of people and the news spread and the Jews who were present on that day and saw Lazarus walk in his grave clothes out of the tomb. They saw it and they talked and they talked. 
and a great number started to follow Jesus. So much so that the religious leaders start to get seriously worried. There have been enough uprisings against the Romans down the years. A man named Barabbas was involved in one of them just recently. And they don't want another one. So the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious council, meets especially, and they wring their hands, and they say, if things carry on like this, we're going to have another resurrection on our hands, yet another one. And you know what will happen? The Romans will come, and they will take over, and they will take away our positions of power, and they will take our temple away from us. And Caiaphas, the high priest, rounds on them and says, you fools, you don't understand anything. Do you not see that we have got to stop this man? We have got to stop this man permanently. And I mean permanently. Otherwise we will lose not only our place, not only our temple, but we will lose the very nation itself. Something must be done to stop this man. And this then, you see, is the backdrop, the backstory to the final two verses in Luke's Gospel that Judy read for us. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. The authorities can't get hold of him during the day. During the night, he slips out of the city and spends the night somewhere out there. Nobody knows where. It's dark out there. There's no street lights. The Mount of Olives is shrouded in darkness. Is Jesus out there somewhere? They don't know. And then a traitor, Judas Iscariot, steps forward and says, I know where he goes. I'll take you there. Thursday night, Judas Iscariot leads a snatch squad of temple police out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they pick Jesus up, as easy as that. Surprisingly little trouble, all things being considered. And then follow the events of Thursday night and Friday, which we too will be following during the coming week. And we can ask, what do these events signify for us? What do these claims at kingship really mean? What we're going to do now is we're going to sing another song together and then we're going to spend a little time thinking about what does Palm Sunday, what might it mean to me? So if the musicians weren't expecting to be summoned forward so promptly at this point. And we're going to sing together how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make him rich his treasure. This is what was weighing on Jesus' mind as he rode through the archway into Jerusalem in the picture that we had just a moment ago. Let's stand and sing this song together.
salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, 
he will proclaim peace to the nations and his rule will extend to the ends of the earth. And those words written a few hundred years before Jesus came into the temple is of course true today. They came true. The world, planet Earth, is now full of people for whom this is true. Those who acknowledge Jesus as King. But this morning I wonder, how about us? We come here every Sunday morning, we sit and we hear the story of the love of God, the call of Jesus. And we've done this so many times. But do we dare to ask, how does Jesus see us this morning? He saw the city of Jerusalem and wept. How does he see us? How does he see you? How does he see me? Does he say, how often would I have welcomed you if only you knew what would bring you peace? But so far, you have not been willing. Well, maybe for some perhaps, Easter 2017 is the time. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, you entered Jerusalem on a wave of enthusiasm, greeted by your joyful people with shouts of praise and protestations of loyalty on every side. Yet you knew that the bubble would soon burst, that the welcome was only skin deep. But now this morning we are glad to hear this story again. And perhaps for the first time we can see Jesus as the true king that he is. And perhaps for the first time we hear his call. And perhaps we can stand before this king this lowly king on his donkey and say, Sir, put my name down. I want to stop just admiring you, Jesus, from a distance. I want to come to you this morning and pledge my loyalty to you, my allegiance to you as my king. I want to live as you would have me live. I want to do those things that you would want me to do. I want to serve you as you have already served me, for you have forgiven me and you offer me welcome just as I am. And now I want to accept that peace that you offered to the city and they turned away from and I don't want to turn away this morning for I know that you give this peace to all who come to you 
And so I say just quite simply, receive me, Lord Jesus, as one of yours, now and forever.